Welcome to Noggin, the Simple Psychology Podcast, where we discuss scientific research in simple and exciting ways that is applicable to everyone. I'm Ben Rasmussen. And I'm McKay Heaton. And we are your hosts. All right, listeners, I have a task for you today. So I want you to find the common theme, the common thread between these two stories that I'm about to tell you. So there is one, I promise, and it it may take a lot of searching to find it, but I want you to try. So first we have Paul, good old Paul. So things were looking good for Paul because he had recently married his sweetheart about a year earlier. Then, just a few months ago, he landed a good job with a major company that paid well. Paul's company sent him on a business trip, his first one, to Viva Las Vegas for the weekend. He checked into the hotel, planning on spending the night watching TV and FaceTiming his wife. On his way up to his room, he walked past the blackjack tables. The smell of smoke and dimlit environment brought him back to his college days when he gambled at a casino a few times with friends. Paul never had a gambling addiction, but he did enjoy it quite a bit. He felt the pull, the urge to have another rush like he did back in the day, so he sat down for just a round or two of blackjack. All right, so that's Paul. That's the first story. The second story now is about Allie. What a woman. Allie is a new mom who just 10 days earlier had her first little baby girl. Her pregnancy and the baby's birth was smooth for the most part, and she was recovering well. Allie and her husband were on their way to visit her husband's family and show off their new baby. Allie enjoyed sharing her birth experience and watching her in-laws hold the baby. A few hours later, she began to feel different. She felt heavier. She also started to feel tighter in her breasts. She tried to ignore the increasing discomfort and enjoy the company, but the heaviness and tightness persisted. Finally, she looked down and noticed that her shirt was soaked with breast milk. (laughs) So that second story is a true story. That's my wife, Allie. (laughs) She had that experience while at my parents' house. (laughs) So yes, we got Paul the gambler and we got Allie the new mother. So what do they have in common? Well, we're going to talk about that today. So our topic today is going to be dopamine. And that's the common thread in the two stories. Now, I'm sure all of you are like, what? (laughs) And honestly, if I didn't know what I knew, I would also be thinking, okay, you're a little bit off your rocker. Like, are you sure dopamine is involved in both of these stories? And yes, yes, I'm fairly certain. So... (laughs) Let's talk about it. So the first paper that describes dopamine uh, is called Distribution of Noradrenaline Dopamine in the Human Brain and Their Behavior in Diseases of the Extrapyramidal System. So I have a question for you right off the bat with this title. Yes. So you hear about adrenaline, noradrenaline, dopamine, serotonin a lot. But for our listeners, what are those? Okay, yeah. So those things that Ben just listed, they're all called neurotransmitters. And neurotransmitters are just molecules that send messages to neurons. So you have a neuron, and that neuron, when it gets stimulated, will say, hey, I'm turned on, boop, and it will spray, send, release, is what we say in neuroscience, release a neurotransmitter in 
to the extracellular space. And all of the neurons that are around that neuron that just released the neurotransmitters will have, well, not all of them, but some of them will have receptors for those neurotransmitters. And when those neurotransmitters come in contact with the receptor on the second neuron, if you get enough neurotransmitter signal, that neuron will send another signal to a different neuron. Okay, so it's kind of like, yeah, so your brain is playing neuron telephone a little bit. There's one neuron, it releases a message of dopamine or serotonin to another neuron, and that neuron takes it and then fires or doesn't fire, whatever it is, and it passes the message along to other neurons as well. Exactly. So these neurotransmitters are just the communication molecules between neurons. And I'm sure you've heard a lot about dopamine and serotonin, especially because they're just hot in the press. And there's, you know, there's more, like you said, there's GABA, which most people haven't heard of. There's glutamate, uh, which is a very important molecule. Lots of people haven't heard about. But each neurotransmitter does different things in different parts of the brain. And we're going to talk about what dopamine does at different parts of the brain. Yeah, so spoiler alert, each neurotransmitter has many functions. So you can't just take one neurotransmitter and say, this is what this neurotransmitter does all the time, everywhere, because that's rarely true. Is that correct? Yes. I am unaware of a case where that is true. So I I don't think it's true anywhere. Okay, thank you for explaining. Yeah, so these, so we have this paper and it's about dopamine in the extrapyramidal system of the brain. Extrapyramidal system is just a part of the brain. And this paper is by Ehringer H, published in 1998 in the Parkinsonism and Related Disorders Journal. So basically what this guy did was he dissected 17 normal brains, two fetus brains, and six Parkinson's brains. And he pulled out the dopamine and noradrenaline from them. In the Parkinson's brains, there were one-tenth the amount of dopamine in the basal ganglia compared to the normal brains. So the basal ganglia is just a part of the brain that's in charge of movement. So the dopamine in the basal ganglia helps people control their movement. For those of you who know what Parkinson's is, it's where people have tremors and they shake. And so the basal ganglia helps you control movement. So people with Parkinson's have issues in the basal ganglia. They have one-tenth of the amount of dopamine. So obviously dopamine aids in creating movement in people. Wow. So there's the basal ganglia. It assists in controlling movement. Dopamine is heavily involved in the basal ganglia. So people with Parkinson's, they don't have enough dopamine in the basal ganglia, and so they have tremors and have trouble with movement. Exactly. Wow. So is Parkinson's only because of dopamine? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's related. It adds to part of the issue. Okay. There's lots of things going on in Parkinson's, not just only dopamine, right? But that's one thing that dopamine does do. It helps in movement. That's a good thing to keep in mind is like we mentioned with the neurotransmitters, they don't just do one thing. And in diseases and physical ailments and things like that, there's a whole hodgepodge of things going on. So- Dopamine is one part of the Parkinson puzzle. Exactly. Okay. So this next study gets into uh, what my wife experienced. So it's called thyrotrophin-releasing hormone, vasoactive intestinal peptide, prolactin-releasing peptide, and dopamine regulation of prolactin secretion by different lactotroph morphological subtypes in the rat. 
Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we learned everything we needed to from this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could just move on. I think we should. <laughs> no. So anyways, I'm not even going to try to describe that. But this was uh, published in Neuroendocrinology in 2007 by H.C. Christian. So I'm not going to describe the whole study. But what they did in the study was they took female rats that were lactating and treated them with sulpiride, a dopamine antagonist. So quick question. Uh, what is an antagonist? Good question. An antagonist is something that stops something else. It's anti. It's against. So sulpiride will stop dopamine from working. Gotcha. So when they're playing brain telephone, sulpiride, it rejects it, the call. It, yeah. It, re- it says no. Sends it to voicemail. <laughs> so builds a wall so that neuron can't send the dopamine signal to the next neuron, right? What they found was that rats treated with this molecule, sulpiride, produce significantly more prolactin than mice not treated with sulpiride. So what does that mean? So prolactin is just a molecule that's in charge of having the mother's milk come in. So if you give a mother rat prolactin, what's going to happen? She's going to get more milk. So prolactin That's one of its roles, aiding in milk coming in. And so dopamine, if dopamine is there as well, dopamine actually stops prolactin from working. So that's why mothers, when they nurse, they have time periods. So if you nurse the baby, they're not going to have milk for a while. For my wife, it's about two hours. About two hours later, her milk's going to come in. She's going to feel it. And she's like, oh, my milk just came in. Oh, my baby is probably hungry. And things can cause the milk to come in. Like if you hear your baby crying, it will actually cause your milk to come in. So lots of things are active in this process. Prolactin is one of them. And so dopamine inhibits prolactin. It stops it from working. So that is very interesting as well. So those people who are like, I just need more dopamine in my life. It's like, well, you just want more breast milk in your life? Is that what you're asking? (laughs) You know, not really. But (laughs) you, you get where I'm coming from, right? Dopamine does more than just make you happy. It's different. Okay. So the next thing that dopamine does is it's kind of a hot topic right now. And neuroscientists are still trying to figure it out. But the next paper is called the role of dopamine in schizophrenia from neurobiological and evolutionary perspective, old fashioned, but still in vogue. Yes. This one's catchy. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So this was published in Frontiers in Psychology 2014. So what this study is, it's a a review of dopamine's involvement in schizophrenia. Okay, so dopamine is an active ingredient in schizophrenia, which might surprise lots of you. So schizophrenia is mental disorder where people see things, hear things, They don't take care of themselves well. It's hard for them to learn. It's a really, really nasty disease, and it's hard for people who have schizophrenia to live normal lives. It's really, really tough. One thing with schizophrenia, too, is there's positive symptoms of schizophrenia, which are the hallucinations and delusions and things like that. Kind of, if you think of it as a plus-minus game, the plus is when something is added to their behavior. There's also negative symptoms, which is anhedonia, lack of motivation, poverty of speech, so not doing anything, having trouble saying things. It's the minus, so it's subtracting things from their behavior. So schizophrenia is a very complex and multifaceted disorder. Yeah, so schizophrenia is a hot topic right now in neuroscience. 
So I'm going to read from the paper, and it says something similar to what Ben said. So the positive symptoms of schizophrenia include hallucinations and delusions as a result of increased subcortical release of dopamine, which augments D2 receptor activation, and are thought to be due to a disturbed cortical pathway through the nucleus accumbens. So to translate that from research into English, what it's saying is that the hallucinations and delusions of schizophrenia are due to a type of dopamine receptor called a D2 receptor. And when that receptor is turned on a lot, when it's augmented, that results in hallucinations and delusions. So if you put a ton of dopamine around D2 receptors, people are going to start hallucinating. Interesting. And that's that's in the nucleus accumbens, not okay. in every part of the brain, just in the nucleus accumbens. It's just a part of the brain. You don't have to know where or anything. But it's important to know it's, that's a different part of the brain. So we were in one part, and, and dopamine's involved in Parkinson's. Now we're in a different part of the brain, and it's involved in schizophrenia. Yes. So Parkinson's and schizophrenia, completely different parts of the brain, but they both use dopamine in different ways. So here's another quote from that review that says the negative symptoms of schizophrenia include anhedonia, lack of motivation, and poverty of speech, which result from reduced D1 receptor activation in the prefrontal cortex and decreased activity of the nucleus caudate. So what this is saying is that the negative symptoms of schizophrenia, which Ben listed, lack of motivation, hard time speaking, those are from a D1 receptor, so the, the dopamine 1 receptor. And when that part of your brain is not as active, you start losing those behaviors like Ben was talking about. It's like the minus sign. You minus those behaviors out of your, out of your life. Hmm. Interesting. So too much dopamine in, on one receptor, positive symptoms. Not enough dopamine on a very different receptor, negative symptoms. Exactly. Interesting. And so people thought, you know, when they discovered these symptoms of schizophrenia, people would just throw dopamine at them because they're like, oh, dopamine's going to dopamine's gonna help their negative symptoms go away. And so they do that, but then they'd start having more hallucinations. But then they started giving them dopamine uh, antagonists, and that caused their positive symptoms to stop, but then their negative symptoms increased. That's why it's a tough disease to treat. That's why it's hard. So dopamine and schizophrenia related. And it a, plays a very key role. Okay, so here's the next thing that dopamine does. I mean, dopamine's crazy. It does so many things. So this is research paper number four that we're talking about. And it's the name of it is Neurobiologic Processes in Drug Reward and Addiction by Byron Adenoff, published in 2007. So this is a review. And to understand the review, you need a little bit of background info. So in 1954, two researchers allowed rats to push a bar to give electrical stimulation to certain parts of their brain. Depending on the area of the brain, it would cause the rats to compulsively push the bar. So they would push the bar all day, no matter what. So that was a really landmark study. And it's talked about a lot still where these rats, they just got addicted to pushing this bar because it lit up this certain part of their brain that is involved in addiction. So 10 years later, Heath, another researcher, 
confirmed the same finding in humans when he found that patients would stimulate specific parts of the brain for reasons other than to obtain a pleasurable response. So he found like people were just pushing this brain because they like they felt like they had to, not necessarily because they liked to hmm. or like felt good when they did it. So in this review, it's a great review about dopamine and reward and addiction. I'm going to quote it because it says it so well. So the initial assumptions regarding the role of electrical brain stimulation in defining reward pathways were apparently oversimplistic. Barrage astutely noted that the early work of Heath reported that patients compulsively administered electrical stimuli rather than endorsing pleasure from the experience. However, these patients described a desire for more stimulation and other hedonic pursuits. It appeared that the pleasure pathway, in quotations, identified primarily from studies of animals, may have been mislabeled. Instead, Barrage and colleagues and others have suggested that the mesolimbic pathway determines the incentive salience, or wanting, of a prospective reward, not the pleasurable experience of the reward itself. Stimulation of this pathway would therefore result in the motivational state of wanting, an expectation of pleasure, but would not mediate the reward's hedonic affective state, or liking, in quotation marks. The distinction between liking and wanting was critical as it segregated the euphoric power of the substance from its addictive potential. That was a big one, but what it's saying is that pleasure pathway is commonly associated with dopamine still because that's the term they gave it when they first discovered it in animals with those rats pushing the bar. However, as more research has been published, we've realized that Dopamine is released more often when we are wanting something, not necessarily when we've got it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So rather than your dopamine levels being highest when you just ate a big cheeseburger, your dopamine levels are highest when you're wanting that burger. Yes, when you're waiting for your order to come, that's when your dopamine levels are the highest. Okay. So dopamine isn't necessarily what most people think it is. It does so much more than just make you happy like what people think yeah and the last thing that we wanted to talk about concerning dopamine today is dopamine and depression so you hear frequently we've been mentioning that a lot of people will talk about oh i just need more dopamine in my life to make me happy but just like you might expect the picture is a lot more complicated than that it's not just give me dopamine and i'll be happier there's a lot of research that looks at this area, and there's much more research that needs to be done to understand this theory, because like we've mentioned, these neurotransmitters are very complicated, and the effects they have on our behavior is also very complicated. So there's some studies that show that using SSRIs, which is the most common form of antidepressant medication that stands for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So those medications act on the neurons in your brain that send messages using serotonin. So those antidepressant medications also lead to an increase in dopamine in that mesolimbic system that McKay was talking about. So we're in the reward center, and the theory is that when you take antidepressant medications, they work on serotonin, and that increase in serotonin leads to an increase in dopamine in the mesolimbic system. However, there are lots of nuances to this. Like we've been saying, there's multiple neurotransmitters that are always involved in our body's functions. Also, SSRIs, these antidepressants, are extremely susceptible to the placebo effect. 
the placebo effect has a huge hand in the effectiveness of SSRIs, about 70%. Another thing to keep in mind is that depression is an extremely complex disorder that has many factors contributing to it. So we have biology and genetics. This is your brain composition. This is your epigenetics, the switches that are flipped on and off. We also have our social lives and the way we think about the world. All of these factors affect our mood and overall well-being. So this idea of framing depression as something purely chemical, as something that purely happens in your brain between your neurons, can cause problems. So these studies have found that when people are told that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance, which is something you hear a lot. That's, that's one of those sexy headlines. <laughs> yeah. People tend to feel less confident in their ability to manage this condition. So they kind of acquire a case of learned helplessness, which is just people feel that, oh, this is out of my hands. I can't do anything to change. And so they don't. Other studies have found that when depression is framed as a disease of the brain, other people are more likely to feel the need to avoid a person with depression. This is usually out of fear that they are dangerous, which is the opposite of what a person with depression needs. So it's important to recognize that depression isn't necessarily going to just be fixed with an increase in dopamine. It's very complex, and there's lots of things that people can try and should try in order to alleviate that. So just to review... Dopamine is involved in many different processes in the brain and body. So it's involved in the extrapyramidal system in Parkinson's. It's involved in schizophrenia in the nucleus accumbens and the nucleus caudate. It's involved in reward and addiction and the wanting, that mesolimbic pathway. It's involved in inhibiting prolactin which causes the release of breast milk in nursing mothers. It's involved in depression and in a very complex way that we don't necessarily understand completely yet. But I want you to know that dopamine just isn't a pleasure neurotransmitter. It does all of those things. And so this principle goes for all other neurotransmitters as well. Each neurotransmitter has many, many roles and many, many hats. So if you see someone advertising something that will increase your dopamine or give you more serotonin or teach you how to master your dopamine, I would be slow to trust them. By all means, check it out because they might be offering something that's good, but I would be slow to trust that it's going to cure you or it's going to actually help you master your dopamine because nobody really understands everything that's going on with dopamine. So I don't know if they can make that claim. And then another thing that I learned from this is that health and happiness rely on a delicate balance of millions of molecules that take part in millions of biological reactions. Our bodies are complex and we need to do things that promote a healthy lifestyle. And so I would avoid those things that say, hey, do this one thing and you're going to be fixed forever. I would say it takes a multi-systemic approach to really, you know, be happy and healthy. So I would just echo that specifically when it comes to depression. It's a very complex disorder that many people suffer from for many different reasons. So if you're feeling depressed, there are lots of strategies to help alleviate that. The cause of depression could be biological, social, or psychological. So you should cover all your bases when it comes to those things. Maybe those SSRIs, those antidepressants, are what's going to help you and nothing else will. 
Maybe it's a lifestyle change. Maybe it's spending more time with loved ones, reaching out to others, or maybe it's just a change in your thinking. So if you are feeling depressed, reach out to a trained professional who has the tools to help you understand how you can best feel better. So like we've mentioned, our health and happiness is a very delicate balance with millions of things at play. However, that doesn't mean that our happiness and our health is out of our hands. Our goal with this podcast is to discuss what we know from the research about how to live happy and healthy lives, from our sleep to our exercise to interacting with others to eating healthy. There are lots of things that we can do to influence our own health and happiness. Hopefully this episode didn't pull the rug out from under you with dopamine. Hopefully this is a message of hope because our well-being is, although totally not in our own hands, there are a lot of things we can do to flourish. Dopamine has lots of roles, but what I want you guys to really know is what Ben said. You can change. You really can. You can affect the amount of dopamine in your brain for sure based on your lifestyle changes, based on if you go to therapy, based on if you spend time with family, based on if you eat healthy. So there's lots of things that go into it that you can control. You can change things in your life. You have been listening to Noggin, the Simple Psychology Podcast. Thank you for listening to our show. We really appreciate it. We have shared with you only a few articles of the thousands that have been published on this subject. Though we wish we could go more in depth, we hope you've enjoyed our introduction and interpretation of this topic. We don't claim to know everything, but we have shared with you our takeaways from reading this research. I'm McKay. And I'm Ben. And we hope you have a great rest of your day.